Hello and welcome to the Hypochondriac's Almanac podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and in case you're wondering, this is the podcast for all of you out there who secretly think you have a new disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge, or a headache. It's not a tumor. We understand, we identify, and we have definitely scoped out WebMD more than a far fair share of the time. We're here to talk about diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and rare disorders. But before we get started, we need to talk about those disclaimers. First and foremost, we are not doctors or nurses or medical professionals of any kind. So please, please, please do not take what we say on this show as medical advice. We are not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see a doctor. Don't guess or take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and future. Let's jump right in, shall we? We've got some interesting stuff planned for you guys on the show today. I've got four different topics and four articles that I'd like to talk about today. The first one is called Microplastics Turning Up in Human Stool. This article is by Linda Carroll and it came out September 2nd. I found it on yahoo.com but it originally came from the Reuters. Tiny bits of plastic may be getting into our bodies via the air we breathe and the food we eat, a new study is suggesting. Researchers who examined stool samples from eight people from diverse geographic backgrounds found that all of their samples contained bits of plastic. This is a little bit scary, and this is according to reports in the Annals of Internal Medicine. This small prospective case series showed that various microplastics were present in human stool, and none of the samples was free of microplastics, the scientists say. Larger studies are needed to validate these findings. Moreover, research on the origins of microplastics ingested by humans Potential intestinal absorption and effects on human health is urgently needed. It seems as though we have plastic and microplastic in just about everything that we are eating, drinking, and pretty much breathing and being around on a day-to-day basis. To get an idea of how widespread plastic ingestion might be, researchers rounded up eight volunteers who were willing to keep a food diary for one week and then submit their poop samples for analysis. The study volunteers came from all around the globe. They got them from Japan, Russia, the Netherlands, United Kingdom, Italy, Poland, Finland, and Austria. Wide range of subjects. Their food diaries showed that all had possible plastic exposure via food wrappers and bottles. None of the volunteers were vegetarians, and six of the eight had consumed ocean-going fish. Then they checked out the stool samples from these folks at the Environmental Agency, Austria, for 10 types of plastic with newly developed analytical procedures. As many as nine different types of plastic with pieces ranging in size from 50 to 500 micrometers were found in the poop samples. The most common plastics found were polypropylene and polyethylene, The samples contained on average 20 microscopic particles per 10 grams of stool. Yikes. The particles were mostly shaped as fragments and films and rarely as spheres or fibers, the researchers reported. So very much like a thread or a very small, long, stringish type thing. 
It is not known where the microplastics came from or how they were ingested, but because there were different types of plastic, the researchers suspect that there are multiple sources ranging from food processing and packaging to shellfish and sea salt, where those sea creatures are eating plastics from the ocean or ingesting it through contact in the ocean. And researchers are also not really sure about how these bits of plastic might be impacting our health on the whole. Discussion is ongoing about the potential health effects of the ingested microplastics and nanoplastics is what they're calling them, at least in animals. Many translocate into the gastrointestinal tissues or other organs and cause pretty dangerous effects, they note. While the new study shows that the bits of ingested plastic can be detected, it gives no insight as to the potential health implications on the population as a whole. Researchers are still doing quite a bit of studies to try to figure out how this could be impacting us in a more specific manner. But these studies do shine a significant light on the different ways of looking into the impacts of plastics on our health. Until now, we've pretty much been focused on measuring and studying the health effects of chemicals in plastics. Now we need to extend those studies to start thinking about including the intact particles of plastic and how they impact us as a population. It seems that, mecha uh, that mechanisms could go beyond the cell and involve effects on tissue matrices, including cell membranes. So ingestion of plastics could really be impacting our cells and the generation of our cells and the formulation of cells in the human body. We just don't know at this point. We need to understand more and do a lot more research on how the particles in our feces are correlated with target tissues, the liver, brain, reproductive organs, fetuses, and placentas, because these things could be significantly being impacted by the consumption of plastic in our foods and beverages. Very, very interesting. So yes, we have a lot of plastic that's popping up. I thought it was just corn, I thought it was chemicals, but now it's plastics as well, which is really a scary thought. The next article that we're gonna talk about is a case of werewolf syndrome. And we talked about werewolf syndrome on an earlier podcast episode on Hypochondriac's Almanac. But this article I found very interesting. It was originally posted in USA Today. The article is by Joshua Boat. It came out August 29th, 2019, and the article is called Werewolf Syndrome, 17 Babies with Out-of-Control Hair Growth in a Drug Mix-Up, reports say. More than a dozen children in Spain have been diagnosed with werewolf syndrome after an error resulted in medicine used to treat alopecia and hair loss being sold as heartburn medication for children, according to local media reports. The Spanish Agency of Medicines and Medical Devices confirmed the outbreak of hypertrichosis, commonly known as werewolf syndrome, after 17 cases were reported by parents in three separate regions in Spain. The disease causes excessive hair growth, which some say can make those affected appear like a werewolf, as in very, very hairy all over their body. All of the parents of the affected children treated their children's heartburn with over-the-counter omniprazole, which is commonly sold in the United States as Prilosec. So these parents thought they were getting something very innocuous, a Prilosec tablet, when in fact it was a medication to treat alopecia. Can you imagine? 
An investigation by the agency found that one manufacturer in Spain, so they narrowed it down to one manufacturer, was to blame for a labeling mix-up that resulted in children accidentally ingesting this minoxidil, which is the active ingredient in Rogaine. Children who repeatedly took the incorrectly labeled tablets developed werewolf syndrome, causing hair to go rapidly on the foreheads, cheeks, arms, and legs of these babies, according to one mother's account. The manufacturer has since been prohibited from manufacturing any medication until this incident has been resolved, and all affected by this mix-up have been addressed and the medications have been recalled, according to the news agencies in Spain. Werewolf syndrome, also known as hypertrichosis, is the excessive production of hair either in one specific area of the body or all over the body. It is really unclear how this particular disease is obtained, but it usually is passed down genetically, according to health researchers. A boy with hypertrichosis in India went viral in February after a video showed his ailment, while the same publication showed a girl in Bangladesh who had been afflicted in 2016. We'll post some images of these poor little kids with this particular disease because it is a very interesting appearance and very distinctive. Other cases can be attributed to the misuse of this medication, minoxidil, which can be applied topically or consumed orally. In these cases, werewolf syndrome is temporary and will eventually go away after the medication stops being ingested. So it looks as though these poor little children who have been afflicted with the taking of the incorrect medication will eventually return to normal. This is not a genetic disease in their case that is specifically linked to the mislabeling of the Rogaine proponents in the Prilosec. So Probably in a few months, possibly a year, these children will be back to normal. But it is a very frightening case that a large manufacturer of a particular type of medication could potentially make such a large screw up. Can you imagine if something like this happened in the U.S.? I think people would be up in arms. And I'm waiting to see what sorts of lawsuits could potentially develop out of a case like this. Because although... It is not a permanent affliction for these children. There's got to be a, a certain level and degree of pain and suffering that occurs for the parents and the children with, due to this mix-up in medications. Very, very interesting stuff, as you can tell. Um, we have another article for you guys, and this one is a very, very interesting article as well. And it's titled, Babies Born by Cesarean Are One-Third More Likely to Develop Autism. This is a very interesting theory and not so much a studied concept, I don't think, because this is really the first that I've seen of this. This article was originally published in The Telegraph and it was written by Laura Donnelly. It came out August 28th, 2019. And it says, Babies born by cesarean are a third more likely to develop autism, research on 20 million births has found. So they have a very, very wide selection of births used in the research for this study. The analysis of more than 60 studies found those who were delivered this way were also a sixth more likely to develop ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Experts said it's not clear why the risks appear to be so high, regardless of whether the cesarean section was planned or an emergency. 
but they said it was possible that factors increasing the chance of such an operation, like the mother being older or the baby being at risk of premature birth, might also explain the higher risk of developmental disorders. So it appears that multiple factors may be at play here, not just the cesarean birth on its own, but it may also and additionally be an older mother or a baby at risk for premature birth that could also contribute to the higher instances of these disorders in the babies with cesarean sections. But exposure to antibiotics after a cesarean section might also play a part, scientists are saying. The study involves scientists from institutes in Sweden and a number of Australian researchers who examined 61 studies involving 20.6 million births to be specific. Professor Jeffrey Keelan, deputy director of the Women and Infants Research Foundation at the University of Western Australia, said the study was interesting and well-performed, but could not adjust sufficiently for a host of factors which might also explain this link. So he's sort of drawing a line in the sand here and saying that more research needs to be done because he's not seeing a very strong link between cesareans and this particular diseases of ADHD and autism. He wants to see a more specific link between those two things before he's willing to say that cesarean sections could be contributing the majority of the reasoning behind that. Other, other scientists said the findings were significantly flawed given that some of the studies included in the analysis had extremely high rates of autism. So they, it does not appear that they looked at other things besides just the numbers of autistic children and cesareans. And there may have been a significant number of other factors that could have caused these higher rates of autism. Estimates suggest that around 1% of the UK population may be on the autistic spectrum. Britain also has one of the highest rates of cesarean sections in Western Europe, with 26.2% of the births delivered this way, as opposed to 19.7% in, in the year 2000. Experts say that much of the rise has been linked with the increasing age of mothers as well as rising obesity levels. This is very interesting because the average age for mothers giving birth has significantly gotten higher and higher through the years, whereas it used to be 18, 19, 20, now it's into the 30s and late 20s. So they're saying that these older ages of the mothers when giving birth could be creating this link between the autism and the cesarean sections, as well as causing more of these mothers to need cesarean sections. But they just don't have enough research and studies done on those things correlating to be able to say conclusively that they are linked. Professor Andrew Shannon, professor of obstetrics at King's College London, said the need for cesareans is often caused by problems that could influence brain function, like a poorly functioning placenta. It's highly unlikely that cesarean delivery on its own is causal in these mental health conditions from our current understanding of brain psychology brain physiology and the effects of cesarean. Women should not be alarmed on the whole by the need for a cesarean, which is performed to reduce the risks to the babies. Dr. Pat O'Brien, consultant, obstetrician, and spokesperson for the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists says, this systematic review and meta-analysis shows an association between cesarean birth and autism and ADHD. 
but a number of underlying factors may also have led to the development of these conditions that have not been accounted for in many of these studies. Therefore, the findings of this paper don't show that cesarean birth leads to autism and ADHD. So he's made that very, very clear that he does not believe that those things are linked conclusively at this point in time. Women who have had a cesarean birth should be reassured that it is a very safe procedure, they go on to say. In many cases, a cesarean birth can be a life-saving intervention as well as the right choice for mother and baby. This is particularly true when it comes to mothers who have difficulty in the birthing process and it's necessary to have a cesarean section in order to protect the mother and the baby. Dr. James Finden, lecturer in physiology at the Institute of Psychiatry, Physiology and Neuroscience in King's College, London, said, This study brings together the evidence of an association between cesarean delivery and neurodevelopmental disorders. It is important to note the results do not suggest that cesarean section causes neurodevelopmental disorders. Indeed, there is good evidence from sibling studies that there is no causal link between cesarean section and autism. It is possible that the association stems from a genetic or environmental factor common to both neurodevelopmental disorders and the need for cesarean delivery. Parents should be reassured that cesareans are a largely safe procedure when medically indicated. So it seems to me that this is a 50-50 sort of thing. Many scientists that are studying this are now saying these things are linked and we should do more studies to figure out how they're linked and what we can do to prevent the autism and ADHD and other disorders that are popping up from this. However, the other half of the researchers and doctors and professionals in these fields are now just basically putting on the brakes and saying cesarean sections are perfectly safe and we do not have evidence to suggest that people with cesarean sections are putting their babies in danger of greater numbers of autism and ADHD. So if you are close to giving birth, considering having a baby, at this point I would not be significantly worried about the risks associated with a cesarean section. It probably is best at this point if you are considering having a baby just to make sure that you're getting the proper nutrients, the proper sleep, and you aren't stressed and all the other little things that might contribute to the possibility that your baby could be harmed in development. So very, very interesting topic. There's a lot of really great research that is going on right now that they are really trying to account for and develop means of discovering why the rates of autism have increased so significantly and so dramatically in the general population for the last couple of decades. I can't wait to hear more about this, and as soon as more studies come out and we find more articles about this, I will definitely provide more information. If you are looking for more information about autism as well, we do have an earlier episode of the show where we do talk about autism, the spectrum, some of the symptoms, and some real-life stories from our co-host, Katrina. So if you're interested in that, go check out our earlier episodes. Very, very cool stuff. The next article that we're going to talk about today is called A 14-Year-Old Girl in Michigan Was Put on a Ventilator After Contracting EEE, the rare mosquito-borne virus that kills a third of people infected and it is spreading. I thought this article was particularly relevant now because it seems as though mosquito season is well underway. 
This article originally came out in The Insider. The author of the article is Gabby Landsberg, and it was written and put out August 28, 2019. A teenager in Michigan has become the latest case in a growing list of people affected by a rare mosquito-borne illness spreading throughout the U.S. So I think people have been aware for a long period of time that West Nile virus is a potential mosquito-borne illness that can be contracted by mosquito bites. I believe malaria is a secondary disease that has pretty much been eradicated for the most part in many parts of the world, but is still present. It's not something that's super common in the U.S., but it now appears that a 14-year-old girl was put on a ventilator after contracting eastern equine encephalitis, a local news station reported. And this is EEE, they're calling it. Two other suspected cases of the disease have been reported by state officials, and six horses have already died of EEE in Michigan this season. Frightening. EEE, or triple E as it is often called, is a rare but life-threatening virus that can wreak havoc in livestock and cause permanent brain damage in people. It can also result in seizures, mental impairment, and even personality changes in survivors of this disease. It is most often found in northeastern United States in swampy, wooded areas from late spring to early fall. So we are right smack dab in the middle of the season where this can be running rampant in swampy, wooded areas where moisture and darkness kind of go together hand in hand. This disease is very common in Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and Texas into the winter months. According to medical professionals, there is no cure, but the disease as well as others transmitted by mosquitoes can be prevented by taking precautions against mosquito attacks. This is why that is so very important to pay big attention to this if you are around areas in those states or if there is standing water, warm, swampy type conditions around the area that you live in. The disease is also in Massachusetts, Florida, New York, and Delaware, according to researchers. Earlier this week, a case of EEE in Massachusetts turned fatal when a 59-year-old woman died after contracting EEE, according to NBC News. An autopsy is now being performed on this woman to confirm the specific cause of death. But three others in the state, two men over the age of 60 years and one man between 19 and 30, have also been diagnosed with the disease. The first case was actually confirmed earlier this month, making the man the first human case in Massachusetts since 2013, according to CNN. On July 25th, Orange County, Florida officials warned the public about an increase in mosquito activity and said that chickens in the area had tested positive for eastern equine encephalitis, according to a press release. Just days earlier in New York, county officials said EEE was discovered in two mosquito pools from a swamp about 20 miles north of Syracuse in a town called West Monroe. And across Delaware... Sentinel chickens used to monitor for mosquito-borne illnesses have also tested positive for EEE, according to Delaware Online. Some communities are issuing warnings and even instilling curfews for people. 
Following the four infections in Massachusetts, 24 communities in the state were declared as critical for the EEE risk, 23 had been declared high risk, and 52 had been declared at a moderate risk, according to the State Department of Health. Since disease-carrying mosquitoes tend to be the most active between dusk and dawn, some communities are actually putting measures into place to try to keep their residents safer by telling them to go inside during those times of the day. The mayor in New Bedford, Massachusetts, also declared a sunset curfew for all city property, including public parks, according to the local radio stations. Rochester, Massachusetts has instituted a similar curfew. And area high schools have moved athletic events like football games to the early afternoon instead of evening to try to prevent some of the spread of this. So why is EEE so dangerous? And the researchers are now saying that it is very dangerous because it can inflame the brain. Only about 5 to 10 human cases of EEE are reported in the U.S. each year, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But about 30% of these cases are fatal, and survivors are usually left with permanent brain damage. That sounds horrifying. After it has been transmitted via a mosquito bite, the virus can cause inflammation in the brain that's encephalitis, which is what makes it so dangerous and potentially fatal. If a mosquito with a virus bites you, you can experience symptoms like headache, high fever, chills, and vomiting for 4 to 10 days afterwards, according to the CDC. You'll know it's not the flu since it suddenly progresses into more serious symptoms like disorientation and convulsions. A blood test or spinal fluid sample can diagnose the infection. It's not just simply a matter of looking at someone and diagnosing on the spot. And although there's no cure, patients should be hospitalized so symptoms can be treated. If the infection doesn't reach the brain, people can take can make a complete recovery within weeks. However, if the brain does become inflamed, brain damage could be permanent and can cause long-term problems like confusion, memory loss, changes in personality and mood, paralysis, and intellectual impairment. About a third of the patients with EEE die, which makes this disease so frightening. And those deaths usually occur within weeks of getting this disease or years later as a result of ongoing physical and mental impairment. Horrifying. So health officials are now saying that the use of bug spray with DEET or lemon eucalyptus should be used to protect yourself. Anyone can get this disease, but people who work outside are particularly likely to be bitten by mosquitoes. Children and elderly people are also more likely to have severe cases of EEE. You can prevent these mosquito-borne illnesses and many others by using a really effective bug spray. It's just that simple. Try to get one with DEET or lemon eucalyptus while outside, as well as wear long pants and sleeves, according to the CDC. And I know that's very difficult in the summer months when it is blazing hot outside and you really want nothing more than to be down in as few clothing as possible. But if you want to sort of cut down that risk of these mosquito bites, it is really important to do that. Health officials are recommending eliminating mosquito habitats as well whenever possible. That means getting rid of standing water from containers around the home like flower pots, gutters, recycling containers, wheelbarrows, and bird baths. 
Also make sure your screens don't have holes or tears so that these mosquitoes can get inside of your home. And this is really important because you may not think like things like bird baths and potted plants could really be a huge contributor to the mosquito growth. But in actuality, we have a running bird bath fountain in the back yard of our home. And I went out there the other day to refill the water container which is in the base of the fountain, and notice that as soon as I opened the plastic cover to fill the water container, a whole sort of little cloud of mosquitoes flew out of the water container. They had been breeding in there. Even though it's running and consistently moving the water through the fountain, these can still be significant mosquito breeding environments. So if you're interested in learning other ways that you can help control the mosquito population, check out the CDC website or go to your local hardware store and see if there are tablets or different things that you can put into your water fountains and bird baths that could potentially not damage the animals that are using the bird baths and could eliminate the mosquito breeding grounds that can sometimes be fostered there. So I think that's it for today. I'm going to go ahead and wrap the show up. So long farewell, please rate and review and subscribe to our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please shoot us an email. I love getting emails from you guys. Our email is thehypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. I will drop that as well as the article references that we have used for the show today into the show notes. Please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, get rid of the mosquitoes, and always live your best life. Bye!